Here's our common sense plan. Less bureaucracy, more homes. We will link the number of dollars that cities get for infrastructure to the number of homes they allow to be completed. Hey, good afternoon, friends. Welcome aboard Rob Breckenridge with the afternoons on QR Calgary. Yes, that's uh, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev speaking in Quebec City ahead of the Conservative Party convention in Quebec City. And look, no doubt, I mean, a whole bunch of issues are going to be discussed at this policy convention. That's what these things are about. But uh, certainly the issue of housing is going to be front and center. It's front and center right across the country. I don't think it's a coincidence uh, that as you see concern rising uh, over housing, That is, the opposition has zeroed in on the housing issue. I think you've seen that reflected in the polls. So I think it's a winning issue, but it's an important issue uh, that we need to be talking about it at all levels of government. So it is going to be front and center, of course, this weekend in Quebec City. It is and will be certainly in the coming days and weeks here front and center in Calgary. A city council gets set uh, to deal with some issues around housing and to finally move forward on some meaningful change. we got a situation here we got to deal with. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, how we're addressing this potentially at the federal level, the situation here in Calgary, uh, someone who represents Calgary at the federal level, of course, Michelle Rempel-Garner, Conservative Member of Parliament for Calgary Knows Hill, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Michelle, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, So much to get into here, but uh, an interesting idea you've been writing about this week, and it comes from your constituency association. It's going to be discussed at the policy convention. Tell us a bit more about this idea, first of all. Yeah, so a uh, policy put forward uh, by my riding association and um, a really talented young man in my office. I was talking about um, how rental history is not really included uh, when people are qualifying for a mortgage. It's not really considered. And the reality is now that uh, given how fast rent has increased, many people are paying uh, levels of monthly rent that could equal or exceed a mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. And in trying to save for a down, home, down payment, pass the stress test, if somebody is making a rent payment that's equal to what a mortgage payment should be, perhaps that should be considered um, in qualifying for a mortgage. And uh, I think that this is particularly true for first-time home buyers young Calgarians, young Canadians. And so that's something that we've put forward to our party membership to consider. Yeah, I like this idea. And I'm, I'm surprised this hasn't come up before, but there's a lot of logic to it because you're talking about somebody who reliably pays their rent, pays their rent on time, doesn't miss rent. But that's not really something that's factored into a credit score or an assessment for a mortgage. Why is that, do you think? It's, it's really interesting. Um, I wrote a piece on this yesterday that outlines some of this in more detail, but um, it can factor into a credit score right now, but it has to, in order for that to happen, it has to be done through a, a couple of limited services. Sometimes there's a fee, and both oh. the landlord and the tenant have to agree to do this. So it's not a perfect scenario to have it uh, considered into a credit score right now. And even with it being considered into a credit score, a rental history is, is sort of would be one aspect of a broader picture. And uh, we're looking at perhaps having, we're suggesting that maybe there's a better way, a framework where this could be more directly considered. Other jurisdictions are already starting to do this. The um, United States, um, as well as the uh, British Tories have proposed a similar policy. So, um, you know, I I guess the point is um, there are so many things that we need to be looking at. Uh, We're looking at, you know, the reality, everybody's facing the reality of super high interest rates, not a lot of availability of capital to do things like purchase homes um, after a long time where that wasn't a factor. So now we have to get really smart and uh, I have to give a shout out to uh, my colleague Jackson, a really smart young Calgarian who was like, Hey, why doesn't, why doesn't this work for me? And I just encourage, you know, all sorts of young Calgarians to come up with um, and speak up on ideas because we, we, we all need to be, thinking outside of the box to address this crisis. Yeah. So this is going to be put forward then as a policy resolution or proposal at the convention this weekend? Correct. It'll be discussed this weekend, and uh, we're looking forward to the debate. This is going to be, as I said, a lot of discussion around this issue because this is the conversation Canadians are having. I don't think it's a coincidence that, uh, you know, the leader of your party is, uh, you know, focusing a lot on this issue. And I'm sure you're hearing about it all the time. What's your sense of how big an issue this has become right across the country? It affects everybody. I, it, there's there's no one it doesn't affect. It's, um, and it's going to take just 
a Herculean effort across different levels of government to overcome this. And really, I think innovative thinking, um, you know, I could spend time on the show telling you tales of heartbreak, but at this point, you know, I, I don't think that we have to keep, we shouldn't have to keep reiterating these horror stories for action. Um, housing is at the root of so many other problems that we're facing as a community right now. Um, addiction, crime, uh, health issues. We need to solve this problem. And, uh, you know, I think it's really important, first of all, for legislators to admit that the status quo is not working. Um, I, I, I still think that there are certainly liberal governments not there. Uh, they, they've been leaning into an approach that is just not working. Uh, that's, that's number one, is admitting there's a problem. And then, again, looking for out-of-the-box solutions across the board to deal with some of the key um, causes of the issue. Right. And I mean, in part of your responsibility is to, to hold the federal government to account. And, and they've got a big role to play here. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of action, unfortunately, at the federal level. But I mean, you represent Calgarians and you're watching the, the debate closely here in Calgary. And uh, city council is getting set to deal with this and some, I think, important recommendations on housing affordability. What's your sense then of, of where the debate's at here in, in Calgary and what you're watching for and hoping for? I'm just really proud that council is um, sort of showing the country and leading the country and saying the status quo is not working. Uh, we can't put bureaucracy uh, and roadblocks ahead of building homes. And that's where all levels of government need to be focused on right now is that outcome of building homes, um, first and foremost. Um, it's such a great crisis and it affects people so heavily that it, that has to be the first priority and then everything else has to be secondary um, you know I know that there are a lot of challenges in the city and people asking questions about like okay well you know, if we're densifying certain areas of the city uh, how are we dealing with renewal of infrastructure etc those are challenges I am confident that we can overcome across levels of government but we have to start by standing with on the side of people who don't have homes right now um, and I think for city council uh, to have respectful but very firm debates and saying we're, we're, we're removing the bureaucracy. We're going to get away from, we're going to cut as much red tape as possible to build homes. Uh, that's very much in alignment with what my party leader said in Quebec City today about incentivizing municipalities who, again, set targets to build homes and pairing infrastructure funding, other types of support with that goal. Um, I think that's so important. I'm really proud of him for saying that. And I'm proud of, you know, city councillors who have just put the dignity that comes with housing at the front of their policy um, agenda. And um, I stand on their side and the side of Calgarians who need houses. Yeah, and I mean, look, there, there are differences of opinion on city council and how to proceed on this. And, and some have bristled at the... Um you know, the involvement or the commentary from, you know, you or, you know, Scott Atchison, the housing critic for your party. What do you say to that? I say uh, I stand on the side of Calgarians who need a home. And it's everybody. I have close friends who have lost homes, um, who have had to move back in with parents. I have people who have had marriage failures who now know, don't know where they're going to live. I've seen... Uh, it, you know, students living in, we, we have students living in cars. I don't, I'm not here to make people comfortable or make friends. Uh, you know, we always want to work collaboratively, yeah. but uh, like we, 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 we need to get, we need to build houses. Um, I, I, that said, I don't think that this has to be a, you know, knock em, sock em, robot sort of clash of the titans. Uh, I, I, there are so many people on our city council where there might be, you know, even partisan differences, but housing is something that should unite legislators in a common cause and common goal and yet there might be vigorous debate about how we get there but the first thing has to be the outcome of building houses and doing it quickly um you know that doesn't mean we can't solve problems um as they arise along the way but what, what the, the path that we've been on as a country it, it's not working it doesn't work it's not working anymore it's <laughs> anywhere in the country yeah. and so we need radical change we need a sense of urgency um, and, and, you know, like anything that even sniffs of nimbyism, not in my backyard, uh, you know, I would just ask Calgarians to put compassion first 
and unify our city. And in, in, in I, what I think, I think we can unite. Our, our city mm-hmm. is capable of really big, great things. And certainly from the federal perspective, you know, my party leader, I think, has tried to inject that sense of hope that as a party, we would, if we were in government, support municipalities who take that sense of urgency and translate that into a process that works, that dignity, that process that gives dignity back to people, uh, the dignity that comes with, um, you know, a, a safe place to live. Absolutely. Not just saying it's a crisis, but let's start acting like it's a crisis. It's a crisis. You're right. And um, I, 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 this, is, this is probably one of the biggest challenges our country has faced in some time. And it's not getting better, better anytime soon. It's getting worse every day. And um, so, again, I'm, I'm really, you know, Calgary has, we're often the unsung heroes of our country. And I'm very proud of the fact that City Council is taking this debate on. Um, and certainly at the federal level, um, the, our message is very clear, is that uh, we want to see municipalities take very uh, strong positions on removing barriers that may have just existed before that preclude homes from being built. We'll see how it all plays out. In the meantime, uh, you've been writing about this issue as mentioned, michellerembelgarner.substack.com. Uh, Michelle, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Michelle Rembel-Garner, conservative member of Parliament, Calgary News Hill. Uh, wanted to make this an issue, right? And, and it's not just about trying to push for change in Ottawa, but also in the city that she represents, the wanting to see some change here. So is it a case of overstepping bounds here? a federal member of parliament, weighing in on a municipal debate around this issue. But again, it's an issue that, you know, overlaps with uh, certainly federal policy, and it's one definitely that the federal conservatives have focused on. Because A, I think it's very relevant right now, and B, yes, politically, it's a winning issue. Canadians are concerned about the issue, and they're not seeing any kind of leadership or action from government. And if you want to look to why the liberals are sinking in the polls, I think this has become a big factor. One of several, to be sure. Uh, a couple of bits of audio I wanted to play here. Uh, first of all, this is um, Ward 1 City Councilor Sonia Sharp. And we spoke with Councilor Sharp, I guess it was uh, last week, late last week, about this notice of motion she was going to bring forward instead of a blanket rezoning to try out a pilot project that would try to reduce the red tape around getting rezoning approved. Because that's something that can take months and months and months. That was narrowly voted down. Now, some of this criticism, and I think maybe Councillor Sharp has taken it as being directed at her. Here's what she had to say about some of this criticism from federal politicians. Hone in on one of the specifics. What do you think, uh, Councillor, the criticism from some Calgary MPs about your motion? Um, you know, they're all allowed to, I would say, you know, shed their opinion. Uh, do I think they're well-informed? Absolutely not. Um, it's a little bit disappointing to think that a Calgary MP, a conservative Calgary MP, would just you know get on Twitter and vir- virtue signal without any kind of, um, I would say, information or background or process. Uh, but we did see um, MP McLean get on there and talk about you know all of it at a high level and say how important housing is. I think you know the, the silver lining is that. Um, Everybody's talking about housing, and if that gets the federal government going and uh, the opposition going, yeah, we would like to see some support here in Calgary, and I think that's another piece of this is our advocacy. Okay, and then you also had former city councilor, current Liberal Member of Parliament, George Chahal, weighing in on this and weighing in on Conservatives who are weighing in. I am disappointed, though, with many politicians who are trying to prevent and block housing from being built. We've seen a number of conservative MPs, one particularly in Calgary, uh, and across Canada, the, their leader, who uh, does not want to build more housing. And so it's a, it's, you know, it's a hypocrisy to see on one end they want more housing built, but they don't want to bring forward uh, a policy framework and empower municipalities to build more housing. Uh, okay, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, you know, certainly, look, say what you will about Pierre Pauly for the conservatives. I mean, they put forward some ideas. On trying to incentivize the building of houses, encouraging cities to build more housing, to reward cities that approve more housing, and to disincentivize uh, communities that stand in the way of that. And keep in mind, this is somebody who sits as a liberal member of parliament. 
what exactly has his government done to address any of this? So it's a little odd for a member of the governing party to be pointing figures at the opposition and suggesting that they're doing a bad job on this issue, uh, when in fact it's this government that's responsible for its own record. The status quo in this country rests at the feet uh, in large part of this uh, this federal government. So some odd comments there from uh, Calgary's lone liberal member of parliament. Anyway, we'll talk much more about this issue this afternoon, 403-974-8255. Get your thoughts as well. Uh, speaking of housing, and I guess on the affordable housing, the homeless side of this debate, we're going to hear from a group in Edmonton uh, that is taking the government to court over the crackdowns, the dismantling of these homeless encampments. We've seen it in both Edmonton and Calgary. Look, I think police have been deliberate, have been cautious in dealing with all of this. But when you got clear evidence of criminality, you can't just turn a blind eye to that. Uh, but this group argues that dismantling these encampments violates the rights of those living within them. We'll get to the back, uh, that debate coming up after 1 o'clock. Uh, coming up later on this afternoon, uh, we'll talk more about the Conservative Policy Convention uh, that's happening this weekend. The other big news today, the federal government finally, after months of foot dragging has announced a judicial inquiry into foreign election interference. We'll get to that coming up later on this afternoon. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Thursday afternoon. We'll get to more of your phone calls at 403-974-TALK. After months of foot dragging, we finally got the announcement uh, that so many Canadians have been waiting for today from the federal government that there is going to be a judicial inquiry into foreign interference in Canadian elections. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc earlier today. The government of Canada, with the support of all recognized parties in the House of Commons, will appoint the Honorable Marie-Josée Hugg, a judge of the Court of Appeal of Quebec, to lead a public inquiry established under the Inquiries Act. Justice Ogg will be tasked with examining and assessing interference by China, Russia, and other foreign states and non-state actors, including any potential impacts to confirm the integrity of and impacts on the 2019 and 2021 general elections at the national and the electoral district levels. Okay, so that was the announcement today. Uh, We're finally getting this inquiry. Uh, Interesting that this is going to focus on more than just China. Like, I don't think any inquiry should ignore what Russia's been up to or other adversaries such as Iran. But I think everything that's emerged about the extent of China's interference uh, certainly means that that needs to be front and center. And again, it's not just about what China did. And, and yes, this inquiry does need to shine a light on that. Let's, let's better understand all of this. But it's also the extent to which any institutions or politicians in this country are compromised. It's also about what the government did in response, what they knew, when they knew it, what they did about it. So that's got to be a big part of this as well. But nonetheless, this, this is a, a welcome announcement, uh, certainly a positive step, and we could have got here much sooner, I think. But joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Margaret McQuaig Johnston, Senior Fellow of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, a board member with the China Strategic Risks Institute. Margaret, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks to be back. Uh, well, it's good to be with you. Well, we appreciate this. So let me get your initial uh, thoughts or reaction, I guess, uh, that we finally got to this point anyway. Well, as you say, you know, the, it's finally starting and we've lost a lot of time, especially with the false start of the David Johnston review. And that actually put us back uh, because some of his findings were just completely off the wall and, and rejected. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the head of it, Marie-José Hogg, is uh, a bit of a surprise because she has no national security experience and no experience related to China. So that's going to be a steep learning curve for her. Well, it is. And, and I know that that's, that's come up in a lot of conversation today and what kind of an impact that, that might have. Now, she certainly has the ability to, to draw upon expertise. But like you say, you were, you were a little surprised that she was the choice. Yes, um, she will be able to, um, you know, get all the documents and briefings that she needs. Uh, and then, of course, she'll also be able to call witnesses, including in-camera witnesses. 
but I was expecting someone like Marie de, uh, Deschamps, who's been on the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency for four years. Uh, for the last two years, she's been chair of that agency, and she would have been exposed to a lot on national security and as a former Supreme Court justice. So I suspect there may have been uh, a rejection of her by the opposition parties because in her post now, she reports to the prime minister. I think that's a bit of a misread uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, she reports not to a political agent, but to the prime minister of Canada, and she's doing a national security job. Um, But we'll never know because that's not the person they appointed. Right. So in terms of the uh, the terms of reference on this, I mean, you know, I think it raised some eyebrows, you know, the talk about Russia or, or other countries, and maybe that is a part of this story. But I mean, at the end of the day, what what is this inquiry about? Why, why do we need this? What are we trying to learn? Well, as you say, uh, China should be front and center because this all started back in February when we had national security leaks that showed really... Um, awful things that China's been doing inside our electoral system, as well as intimidation of our diaspora. And so, you know, I was hoping that we would have a focus on China for the first phase and then move on to Russia and other countries as a second phase Mm -hmm. to get the really substantive problem dealt with early and well before the, the next election. But instead, they're mixing it all up. That allows the government to say that they're not targeting a particular country. It kind of washes that out, though. So that's uh, really a win for China. It's going to be interesting to see China's reaction to this. I mean, you know, they, they've bristled even at some of the, the talk in the news about, you know, their interference in Canadian elections. It's not really something they want discussed, let alone the subject of an inquiry. But at the same time, I mean, you know, the government's not going to reverse course on this, we assume at this point. So maybe that represents drawing a line in the sand? I mean, does this illustrate to any extent, in your view, that the government's policy toward China is starting to change or evolve? Well, it does, because it's combined also with uh, the trip that the Prime Minister is on right now in Southeast Asia. And he's really uh, doing a pivot away from China to build trade relationships in uh, other countries in the region that follow rule of law. And uh, it's building also on the government's Indo-Pacific strategy, which had a big section up front on China, very clear eyes about its coercive behavior and uh, and why Canada needs to uh, help companies move away from China to other uh, countries in the region. But uh, at the same time, I think this inquiry is going to have some challenges because the, the what the, the the justice is being asked to do is identify um, information that she should see uh, from re- officials and politicians, um, and so she needs to know what information she needs. Uh, that's a, a, a difficult one to up front. Also. Um, She's to make recommendations to protect our democratic process. But all of this puts the onus on the government and, and, and the justice as making recommendations to prevent foreign interference from being successful. And nothing on it uh, focuses on the actions to hold China accountable for yeah. what they've already done. And, uh, you know, we've seen one diplomat sent home and only because his name was uh, associated with the uh, initiative that China took to uh, upset our, our election. And uh, and so it's, I think, going to be difficult for her um, to, to uh, hold China to account in the context that she's been given. Yeah, and that's an important point. I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, the government's China policy needs to, to get to that point where that becomes the focus in holding China to account. But I mean, you know, at the same time, we just had Canada's environment minister in Beijing, essentially engaging with uh, the, the Chinese government via this, you know, this so-called think tank. I mean, what kind of a message do you think, um, you know, that that's it? Well, I think climate change is the one topic we can continue to talk to uh, China about. So I wasn't surprised that he was the first minister to be sent over there. 
uh, frankly, you know, for the last four years, they haven't answered the phone calls of uh, politicians and, and officials from Canada. And I'm, I'm not sure that this will really be a, a new start for the relationship. I think there's too much water under the bridge. Um, we've seen problems, especially in our own diaspora, the Chinese Canadians, uh, Uyghurs and Hong Kongers and Tibetans who have been targeted and threatened by China. And they're need, going to need to have a closed-door testimony for what's been done to them and, uh, and a real um, you know, opportunity for the justice to ask them questions about um, how they've been treated in a way that's not threatening to them or their families back in China. The last thing we need is for them to be speaking in public about that, as David Johnston had proposed. Yeah, no kidding. So, the, the, you know, even though we're calling this a public inquiry, there is going to be much that, that does need to be heard behind closed doors, intelligence matters, and as you say, those those who fear repercussions. So there, there's going to be that side of it, maybe that we won't, won't be as visible to all of us. Um, that's true. But um, actually, you know, there were 22 uh, national security leaks and revelations in February and March. And David Johnston's report uh, talked in detail about 12 of them, about what the accusation was, uh, what, what exactly happened, what did ministers know, uh, who, who was talked to and what did they say about it. And, and he went through that for each and every one of 12 of the 22. So it shows that it can be done. And that part at least was encouraging to me. We'll see how this all unfolds in the weeks ahead. Margaret, appreciate your input on all of this. Thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks, Rob. Good to be with you. All the best. Take care. Margaret McQuig Johnston, Senior Fellow of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, also with the China Strategic Risks Institute. Some thoughts from her on this public inquiry. Yeah, I think disappointing to many that uh, we've got a judge that lacks any national security experience. Let's hope that's not a problem. And, and the watering down or the diluting of the mandate itself or the, the terms of reference here, that this whole story has been very much about what China has done and attempted to do and how the government responded. Good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Reaganridge with you here on a Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for being with us. A lot would get to uh, in this hour. Of course, uh, big news today. The Bank of Canada uh, announcing that it is going to hold the line on interest rates. Uh, the rate remains at 5.0%. Although the bank's suggesting that, you know, they could still raise rates in the future. They don't see some of this uh, lingering inflationary pressure ease. We'll talk more about that. A few other things to get to as well. Uh, the federal government has been very busy trying to uh, regulate the Internet uh, through uh, Bill C-11, uh, an overhaul or a modernization of the Broadcasting Act, and uh, C-18, the so-called Online News Act. And both of those, by the way, have dropped in the lap of the CRTC, which is responsible for regulating broadcasting in this country. Uh, but for, I guess the next couple of years won't be doing that. Uh, the CRTC, in, in a shock to the radio and TV industry, has announced that it won't be dealing with any new radio applications or complaints for the next two years. Why, you might ask? Well, they're busy implementing the Online Streaming Act and the Online News Act. The Online Streaming Act is about trying to wedge the uh, Internet into the Broadcasting Act to try to regulate Spotify or YouTube or Netflix in the way that the CRTC and the Broadcasting Act already regulates radio and television. The Online News Act, of course, is about trying to force Meta and Google into agreements with media outlets to compensate them for the news links that appear on those platforms. Now, the CRTC will be the ones to decide which news organizations qualify for that and to decide if the agreements are sufficient. Might all be a moot point, though, because Meta has already said that they don't want anything to do with this regime, and uh, Google might be uh, not far behind. Uh, so despite the, uh, the two messes the government has created for itself, it seems as though they are still moving forward with another massive attempt at online content regulation, the so-called Online Harms Act. So joining us to talk about uh, all of the above, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Peter Menzies, uh, former editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, uh, Nash, uh, national newspaper award-winning journalist. 
He was uh, vice chair of the CRTC for a time and uh, is currently senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Peter, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's always a pleasure, Rob. Thanks very much for inviting me. Let's talk about the CRTC first of all. It's interesting how with C-11, the um, former legislation on that side updating the Broadcasting Act and now C-18, the Online News Act, both of these have been dumped in the lap of the CRTC and it seems like they've pretty much checked out when it comes to their more traditional responsibilities. What has that meant? It means they've been kind of overwhelmed. They've been, uh, I mean, they have done auto renewals of licenses for short terms in the past. But they just did more than 300, basically everything, every TV channel, uh, discretionary channel, um, cable license, et cetera, for um, two years for those that were expiring this year and for two years for those that are expiring next year. So they're punting everything into the future. And they've just basically shut down radio regulation. Um, People can't file complaints. People can't get their licenses changed, modernized, adapted, uh, expand, contract, Get, you know, decide if you have a if you want to become a cool jazz station. Um, you're not going to be able to get that process rolling for at least a couple of years. So they've they've been uh, by their own admission sort of overwhelmed with the new work that they've been given with Bill C11, all of which they said would never happen, and the right. Heritage Ministry said wouldn't happen, and which was but was easily predicted. Yeah, it's ironic in a way. I mean, the federal government talks uh, about how they're trying to help the media industry and the broadcast industry in Canada. But it seems like, you know, the mess we've got with C-11 and C-18 and now with the CRTC having to sort through all of this, it's doing a tremendous disservice to broadcasters, isn't it? The phrase, we're from Ottawa and we're here to help, has never been more poignant, I think, than uh, we've seen in the last few weeks. It's kind of like, I mean, if you're going to help somebody, help somebody, right? Right. uh, you know, first do no harm and all that sort of stuff. But it's, yeah, it's just a mess. Um, you know, th- and that's why as much as there might have been problems before, they might have been better just to leave things as they were because, you know, things were moving okay or just tweak things or at least try to take uh, manageable, si- you know, take things in, manage- in digestible bits. Um, Bill C-11 should have been much more specific if they, you know, then it, then it is. If, the, if it was about getting money from web giants, as the ministers kept saying, they should have just written it to get money from web giants and said, okay, this applies to everybody who brings in more than 100 million or 50 million. Pick your pick your level, and uh, this is what it's going to do. And uh, by making it as sweeping as they did, they've confused everything and put way too much workload on the CRTC, which let's face it, doesn't exactly have a reputation for promptness anyway. Yeah, so the CRTC is trying to figure out how the Broadcasting Act can apply to platforms like YouTube or, or Spotify, and, and that seems like a, a, a huge endeavor. But in the meantime, in the Online News Act, I mean, theoretically, the CRTC is responsible for reviewing any deals that, that Meta or Google strike with news organizations or reviewing which organizations are eligible to strike these deals. But at the moment, Peter, it seems like there's no deals to be had. Meta has made it clear, even after the draft regulations were released last week, uh, that they don't want any part of this. Uh, they kind of called the government's bluff here a bit, haven't they? Yeah, Meta's pretty much gone. It's uh, they, they seem very comfortable. It's almost creepy, uh, comfortable with their decision. They'll probably have some issues down the road because people are going to be trying to figure out how to do frame grabs and and uh you know secondary links and that sort of stuff to get stuff through um but that'll all end up in the courts probably at some point um but no they they seem very comfortable getting out of the news news links business um i I know their testing showed that actually people on facebook were I, i can't say that they didn't miss news um but there was less fighting you know there's less complaints about bullying, less complaints about harassment, less complaints about fake news and that sort of stuff. And a lot of advertisers don't really like to be next to, uh, you know, uh, that kind of mess. So they seem creepy. You know, it's it's pretty, it's kind of creepy that that they're as comfortable with it as it is, but they are very comfortable and I don't expect to see them back. And Google may be gone too, because the new regs don't seem to satisfy them. And that'll really, really hurt. 
Yeah, no kidding. So uh, despite the fact that uh, these two legislative initiatives haven't gone well, it seems though the government is still uh, set on pursuing what's known as online harms legislation. Yet a piece today uh, at the uh, line, the line.substack.com, uh, about, you know, some of the pitfalls of taking this approach. Yeah, look, there's some awful stuff out there on the Internet. Uh, but what, what are your concerns with what uh, the Online Harms Act is shaping up to be? Well, I mean, some of the concerns are sort of laid out in there in terms of look at what people are, what, look what's happened elsewhere. You know, there's a politician in Finland who's on trial um, because she quoted from the Bible and, you know, articulating her her position in favor of traditional marriage and that sort of stuff. Where people might disagree with that, for sure, many people would. But, I mean, being on trial, um, I'm <laughs> facing yeah. a jail sentence, that seems uh, that seems a little harsh. There's a lot of activity everywhere. Um, governments seem very nervous about, you know, the the, the extent, the the liberty that uh, an unregulated uh, internet granted. They were, as I point out, they were happy when it was bringing down dictatorships in Egypt and Tunisia. Um, less happy than the bots and the algorithms and and uh, other things come into play. So it's it's very very tricky. Um, I did a paper a couple of years ago with Conrad von Finkenstein that talked about a social media responsibility act which had a very light hand which just insisted that people be responsible the worst things on the internet though can be made illegal and already are things right. like you know child pornography yeah and uh, uh you know uh, recruiting terrorists all you know, all those sorts of things they're already illegal and the police already enforce that so i'm very nervous about the idea of having a you know, with a digital safety commissioner is the working term for it, and uh, uh, somebody deciding what truth is. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the challenge of, of trying to regulate everything that's out there is is a tremendous one. Um, but the idea, yeah, that we would have some new commission or commissioner that would be responsible for this, uh, you know, I guess maybe the kind of onus now we would try to place on some of these social media platforms. And, and look, I mean, you know, they already have some some onus to monitor what's what's on their platforms. But uh, then to try to have to fit into some censorship law in Canada or rules around how content is to be removed uh, it, it sounds like another big uh, awkward challenge here. Yeah, and it, and it, and it's another thing that is going to cause uncertainty, right? And the, the, these legislations, the C11, C18, and the Online News Act. I mean, when they first rolled out a prototype of the Online News Act, a couple, or sorry, the Online Harms Act, a couple of years ago, the feedback they got from, you know, I think. Twitter at the time, and that's the pre-Elon Musk Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, said this reminds them of what they do in North Korea and 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 China in terms of internet regulation. So you can, you know, the, the line is very thin, and and once you cross it, you you get yourself in a in a in a very awkward position. So I'm hoping they take a step back because it just creates more fear, more uncertainty, which is going to create less investment, um, more social tension more distrust in institutions and that sort of stuff. And we need to rebuild a lot of those things right now, not uh, further diminish them. What's the thing? I mean, it seems like the government sort of has this this notion of how they would like the world to be or how they would like the Internet to be. Wouldn't it be great if there was less awful stuff on the Internet? Wouldn't it be great if, uh, you know, there was uh, more Canadian content and more revenue sharing, all, all these pie-in-the-sky ideas? But then when you actually try to legislate all of this, the follow-through, as we've seen already, it's, it's very messy. All of this is, uh, I guess we can say, much easier said than done. Yeah, it is very messy, and and like I said, sadly predictable too. Because it's it's I continue to be fascinated by this government that 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 uh, you know I think believes itself to be, and many people believe it to be, you know, the most progressive in Canadian history, um, in, in terms of that. But when it comes to this, you know, this sort of legislation, they're very regressive. They they they're, they're yeah. sort of like trying to recreate the 1980s or the 1990s. The the kind of the pre-internet world. And it's not like the internet doesn't have problems and it's not like it doesn't need regulation in certain areas. But they all seem to be sort of wanting to preserve something from the past rather than building something for the future and understanding it. So they 
they seem to have a great deal of difficulty understanding what the 21st century communications world looks like. Yeah, I think that's become abundantly clear. Uh, as I mentioned, your latest is up at theline.substack.com. Much more as well, of course, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Always thanks for your interest, Rob, and have a great day. Let's start this afternoon, though, with the latest on what's happening in the nation's capital. An important trial this week underway. Similar in some respects to the public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act in that there is once again going to be a retelling and a rehashing of what transpired in the nation's capital during that Freedom Convoy protest back in February, January, February of uh, 2022. Uh, But unlike the public Uh, inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. This is about criminal charges against two individuals, protest organizers Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. So today is day two of the trial. Global's David Aiken has a recap of day one. This is going to be a closely watched trial for any number of reasons, not the least of which is we're going to have two sides, the Crown and the defense, arguing about free speech rights, about the rights of protest. Now, in his opening statement, the Crown Prosecutor told the court that charter rights are not unqualified, that they are not absolute. He promised to show how Tamara Leach and Chris Barber were, quote, key organizers of the protest, that they exercised influence over the placement of trucks in downtown Ottawa, they caused roads to be obstructed, and those two pressured decision makers. The prosecutor told the court that, quote, this case is not about their political views. What's at issue is the means Leach and Barber employed, not the ends. Now, the Crown will argue this was anything but a peaceful process, that these two crossed the lines and they committed multiple crimes. Now, the defense lawyer for Barber had a very brief reply in his in her opening statement. She said, my client participated in a lawful, peaceful protest and that the two of them actually assisted police during the protest. Donna. David, how is this trial going to play out in terms of witnesses and testimony? Well, this is just day one of 16 days that have been set aside for this proceeding. The Crown expects to put out 120 exhibits, including 50 videos. We saw one of those videos today, a 12-minute long compilation from the police of video from those uh, weeks in January and February. We're going to have 22 witnesses, police officers, city officials, nine residents of downtown Ottawa. And here's something, the defense will want to exclude all those residents. The defense wants no residences, residents on the witness stand. Now, both Tamara Leach and Chris Barber were in court. They were accompanied by their spouses. They didn't have much to say. And to be honest, uh, we're not very sure if they're even going to testify in this matter. Okay, that from Global's uh, David Aiken, who's covering the trial this week. So joining us to talk more about the significance of this trial, what's at stake here. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Michael Kempup, criminology professor, University of Ottawa. Professor Kempup, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks a million. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's about these two individuals and whether or not they're guilty of the charges uh, that they are, are facing. But beyond that, Michael, what, what do you see as, you know, the, the significance and what's at stake in this trial? Well, the main thing is we've already, as you, as you were just going in your intro there, we're talking about rehashing a lot of what we did through the Public Order Emergencies Commission. Yeah. The difference is the Rulo Commission was interested in presenting multiple people's perspectives or their personal truths about what happened at the Freedom Convoy. And that was largely a public education exercise so that Canadians could see that everybody around the table had very different views of the pandemic, of what happened during lockdowns, loss of livelihood, and experiences in and around Ottawa. But now that we're in criminal court, the filters are a lot finer. We're not so concerned with what people's feelings were or what their perspectives on truth were at any given moment. It comes down to the hard legal questions of what was said when, what was the nature of the pattern of communications that reveals people's intentions as to whether or not undisputed statements such as hold the line meant carry on with peaceable protest or illegal protest. Michael, to what extent is the system itself kind of on trial here, right? And this goes back to a lot of the themes from the public inquiry, how police responded, how political leaders responded, right? How the state, how the system dealt with all of this. Well, it's this time around, it's less about the performance of the system, the breakdown in policing, the poor communication between and coordination between three levels of government, as it is about weaknesses in our legislation, 
and in our frameworks. In Canada, we have very poor legislation defining what is legal versus illegal in protest. Mm-hmm. In the United Kingdom, for example, they're a lot further ahead of us than we are in defining what exactly you are and not allowed to do in peaceable protest. So it falls to our courts. So we're going to get to the question, as you heard uh, just a moment ago, counsel for the accused, famous lawyer, Lawrence Greenspan, is arguing that people have charter rights to public assembly and freedom of expression, and that those should trump property ownership and property use rights, which are those rights that start to get involved with mischief, because when you're charged with mischief, it's about not letting people use property for its intended purposes. Right. And it's an interesting criminal charge. In a way, it's very plainly defined. As you say, Section 430 of the Criminal Code, everyone commits mischief, willfully destroys or damages property, renders property dangerous, useless, inoperative or ineffective, or obstructs, interrupts, or interferes with the lawful use of property. So that would certainly apply here. But I think the thing is, it can apply to a lot of things. And so it's really subjective, I guess, at what point any kind of a protest crosses the line into mischief. And that's exactly right. So that's where the courts will begin to uh, spell out in common law where does the use or damage or blockage property start to become unreasonable such that it might be, in a sense, legitimate to put a bit of a check on your charter right to free assembly. So think about Ottawa. A minor case of mischief. I go to your house and I disable your garden gate. You can't access your garden. That's a minor form of mischief. You shut down a city such that thousands of businesses are closed. People can't go about their daily essentials like obtaining medication or getting to medical treatment. The Crown is arguing that that is such a significant interference to the intended use of property that is a major form of mischief that might be meriting uh, a significant prison term, although I would say that is unlikely. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting here because it's not just about the actions of these two, the two accused. It's also about the actions of others, right, the influence they had. Well, that's exactly right. So that's when you start getting into counseling to commit mischief, counseling uh, to obstruct police activity and intimidation. Are we saying, if we say something like hold the line, what do we mean by that? Well, if you've defined the protest as an illegal occupation and somebody cries out, hold the line, it sounds like they're encouraging people to carry on with the protest that most people understand has crossed over into the area of illegality. But if you are, as Defense for the Accused is arguing, Mr. Greenspun, saying that it's an insult to even call this an occupation, because an occupation in law refers to a foreign military taking ownership of a space contrary to the wishes of the citizens. Well, then you're saying, if you say hold the line, are you just encouraging people to stand up for their principles, however their conscience may allow? Are you encouraging lawful protest? That's certainly the defense of Ms. Leach and Mr. Barber. It's interesting, too, because at the end of the day, it's about whether the Crown can prove that these two are guilty of these crimes. But it feels like the followed from this, whichever way this trial goes, is going to be significant because there are those, as you say, who believe that this was an illegal occupation. Those who say that this was a legitimate uh, protest, an exercise in, in freedom and democracy. If these two are found guilty, I don't know if it necessarily answers the question about the uh, legality of all of this. And if they're acquitted of these charges, I, I don't know that it necessarily proves the other side. But I, I suspect it's, it's going to be interpreted that way. It will. Uh, I think that you can say that there are people with fanatical views on both extremes around the convoy. There were fanatical supporters who were not only here about va- vaccine mandates, but who took on all manner of conspiratorial ideas to do with globalist conspiracies to run the Canadian government and pedophilic rings and so forth. And then there were people who were fanatically against the convoy who considered that people had no legitimate grievances whatsoever, which is obviously also um, an extreme position. But in the middle, there are a lot of people who say, look, something went wrong here. It spiraled out of control. How do we essentially fix not only our police and coordination between levels of government, but spell out and get a little bit of clarity here about what we allow for mass protest? And when if there's clarity, people know how far they can go. You can have sort of an open atmosphere for protest without fear of arrest and so forth. 
And we will, speaking of the Emergencies Act, Michael, I mean, you know, we have the public inquire into the use of the Emergencies Act. Uh, Justice Rulo found, I think, kind of barely, but, but found that the government was justified in, in using the act, but made dozens of recommendations uh, as to how maybe we need to, to change the Emergencies Act moving forward. We're still waiting on the government's response to that. In fact, it sounds like we're not going to learn um, those plans until the new year. Um, so what do you make of the time it's taking to, to get around to dealing with this? Well, Justice Rulo did say he'd like a response within a year, which would take us to February of 2024. We just had a little bit of an interim report from the government that more or less said we're working on it. What I will say, though, about that interim report, I was very concerned to hear that the government has not yet decided whether it's necessary to modernize and update the Emergencies Act in exactly the way that Justice Rulo uh, recommended and outlined. I would say if the federal government, the Trudeau government, does not act in reforming the Emergencies Act, it would have essentially been a waste of $30 million to have had the inquiry to begin with, because that was the major conclusion Mm -hmm. of that entire enterprise. We have a set of challenges coming down facing national security that are fundamentally different from the world of the Emergencies Act of 1985, climate change emergency a world of contagion where you can have pandemic at any given moment, Uh, political polarization and mass protests that can raise money and membership in lightning time because of social media. If we're not prepared to handle those challenges, we would have essentially learned nothing from this entire exercise. What are some of the most important changes that that you think are, are necessary here? Well, the most obvious one is that the, uh, the famous Section 2 CSIS standards that define threat to national security for CSIS's purposes mm-hmm. should be detached from the Emergencies Act. Government, as Justice Rulo pointed out, makes a political decision about whether or not to invoke the Emergencies Act. Government is accountable first to Parliament, second to the inquiry that is mandatory by the Emergencies Act, and finally to the electorate, whereas CSIS is not. It makes no sense whatsoever that the exact same standards would apply to CSIS as they do to the elected federal government. Well, we'll find out in the new year, I guess, what the government's plans are for the Emergencies Act, and uh, we'll presumably find out before then uh, some kind of a verdict in, in this trial, which continues today. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Kemp, I appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Always. Thank you kindly. Likewise. All the best. Take care. Michael Kemp, a criminologist, a professor at University of Ottawa. So his thoughts on uh, what's at stake of the trial here and where things stand with the Emergencies Act itself, which, of course, was used to bring about an end to this protest or this occupation, whatever it was. So, yes, I think in some respects, you know, these arguments are on trial here. And I think a lot of people are going to see if these two are found guilty, therefore the protest was an illegal occupation. If they are acquitted, therefore the protest was a legitimate expression of opinion, a legitimate gathering uh, under the the, uh, Constitution. So, I I don't know. Does it? Does it prove either of those points, Uh, depending on how this goes? Again, it's about these two individuals. Uh, But they were very much front and center in what happened in Ottawa over those uh, days and weeks. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, The trial continues today. And uh, again, it it does mirror in some respects uh, what we saw with the uh, public inquiry. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.